The Lord is our salvation. So nice to sing that, uh, not by myself, but with you guys. And to find unity and harmony in those words, the Lord is our salvation. That is a good song. You may notice my voice is a, if you know me very well, you know my voice is about an octave lower than normal. Uh, Fighting a little bit of a chest cold, but I don't know where it came from. It didn't start anywhere but the chest. It just happened. And so if you hear my voice crack, try not to make fun of me. I see it. So if, you, if I hear my voice crack, just try not to, try not to laugh too hard. Um, it might happen. But if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we are going to be looking at first half of chapter 2. Now last week we got a little bit of a peek into chapter 2, uh, but we're going to start again in verse 1 uh, this week and read through verse 11. And while we are getting into some new thoughts, uh, Paul is going to take us on the kind of a, what seems like a slightly different direction. The, the theme, though, and the tone is very, very same, very much the same. In fact, the thread of this whole book, the thread of this entire letter is about Paul's heart for this body. If you remember, that's what we were focusing on a bit last week was that this letter is a, is a heart letter. It's a, it is a powerful heart letter from Paul to this church. It's about his love for them. And he's demonstrating his love for them, or he's showing evidence of his love for them by his desire for them to be unified. His desire for them to be one. Meaning, as we discussed last week, that as God's yes to us in Christ is sure, solid, not wishy-washy, not yes and no, but God's yes to us is absolutely yes and sure to us in Christ, then so is our yes to one another. As God is for us in Christ, then so are we for one another. This is the theme in the mode in the mood of the letter. We are unified in God's grace. Meaning that as God has shown grace to me, and God has shown you grace, we share that grace and forgiveness. This means that I, I should be able to look at you and I should see a person that has been elect by God, chosen before the foundation of the world. I should see someone who has been forgiven, completely and utterly forgiven. And in that, I can say, we're the same. We are the same. In that, we find unity, oneness, and And we have what Jesus prayed for. This is what Jesus prayed for in John 17. He said that they would be one, just as I and the Father are one. Now, would Jesus pray for something like this if it wasn't important to him? This unity that he asked for, this solidarity, this fellowship of the saints which we understand the word saints just means holy ones. So it's, it's the fellowship of his holy ones, his church, his called out assembly, those whom he has literally plucked out of the world and placed into his family. He prayed for oneness of his family. It is our unity that is very important to God. Because as we discussed before in previous weeks, The body of Christ or the church or his called out assembly, it matters to God because the glory of God matters to God. 
The glory of God matters to God, and so it mattered to Paul. The unity of the bride of Christ is a big deal. It's a very big deal to all who share God's heart. Those who share in the spirit of Christ will share in the desires of Christ. And it's his desire that we be one and unified. It's his desire that he be glorified. And so where we all who share his passion for his glory, we all too also share his passion for displaying his holiness, which is what glory is. It's putting his holiness on display. And this is what Jesus said would happen if we were unified. He said that our unity would do just that. It would show the world that God sent him. And as Brian mentioned a few weeks ago, our unity, our unity is found or rooted in God's work for us in Christ. Our unity is found in one mission together to proclaim Christ to the world and make disciples and we are unified in a one-minded effort and endeavor to pursue holiness together. All of which demonstrates to the world that God is holy. Go get that book that Dad talked about at announcements. The church is designed to shout to the whole world, God is holy. God is holy. God is holy. It's not a come and see, though, to go and tell. God is holy. God is holy. But sin, our greatest problem is self-seeking. Our greatest issue is self-righteousness. Our greatest challenge is preferences or desires of the heart to, to love things more than God, which is what sin is. All of this within the church, all of the sin, the self-pursuits, self the self-endeavors, the selfish ambition left undealt with does not display his holiness. Conditional love versus gospel-centered love does not display the holiness of God. People not pursued, not loved, does not display his holiness. And people not forgiven does not do anything to put on display the forgiveness and the holiness of his love to the world. This is Paul's aim in this letter. This is Paul's aim. His desire is to pursue them, to show them what it's like to pursue those that reject you, pursue those that, uh, that want to fight against you, that sin against you, because he longs for their holiness. He longs for their unity because he's passionate for God's glory and therefore he desires to preserve their unity. He's passionate for God's holiness to be put on display so he fights for their unity. And he will seek to do this, as we'll see today, he sought to do this through loving rebuke. Loving rebuke and a demonstration of unconditional forgiveness. And so our main point this morning, you can follow along with the main points. You can also 
Look in the back of the handout where it has the version of Scripture I'm reading from today, which is the NASB. If you want to follow along in the same version, it's on the back of the handout. Our main point today is this. Unity is preserved by fighting like family and forgiving like Jesus. Unity is preserved by fighting like family and forgiving like Jesus. So let's pray and ask the Spirit to help us. As we go to God's Word this morning, this is why we're here. This is why we're here today, to, to hear from God this morning. So pray that we would have ears to hear Him. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would do a marvelous work in this body. You continue, O oh God, to work in the hearts of your people. We pray, God, that as a result of not just today, but the word preached continuously on Sundays and Wednesdays, word and gospel preached through singing and through fellowship and through conversations throughout the week, through phone calls, through texts, through pursuits, through friendships, Lord, every moment that this body is pursuing one another to preach the gospel to one another, that in that, Lord, the Spirit would bear so much fruit in this body. That there would be so much unity, so much of your glory and holiness put on display through a people who are ready to fight like family and forgive like Jesus. We cannot do this apart from your spirit. Lord, you said that apart from me, you can do nothing. So Lord, we seek to abide in you this morning. Abide in us. Feed your sheep. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you're, if you're there, we're at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> verse 1, but I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But the one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. 
for we are not ignorant of his schemes. This is God's word to us this morning. And so in these, in these verse, uh, first 11 verses, we see the word sorrow, or we see the word pain used about eight times. This, this word sorrow or pain, it's really in regards to how Paul felt or how they felt in their kind of this conflict that they were having. Now, we generally don't like this word, sorrow or pain, do we? Uh, in fact, if you were to take, uh, take kind of account of most people's lives, including your own, you would probably see people who do almost anything to avoid pain and sorrow. You almost might say it's the conviction of our lives to avoid pain and sorrow. We just want comfort. But we also recognize that pain or sorrow is often the means really to a glorious end. Right? All you, all you gym rats out there, you runners, you're very familiar with the phrase, right? No pain, no gain. For all you medically minded people, you know that as blissful as it might be to not have to ever experience pain through blood or cut or a broken leg, how nice it would be not to feel that pain, but ultimately, you know, that's not good. We need pain. We need pain to show us where the cut is, where the broken leg is, so that we can fix it. We know emotionally that someone who has no sorrow or has no emotional connection to the sorrows of life, that they really have no ability to empathize with the rest of the world. And so while pain is hard, and while sorrow is often tough, it is also often God's means to getting us to joy. True joy. Back to himself. We're prone to wander. But sorrow is often the means by which God draws us back to himself. Or as we talked about before, sorrow might be the very means by which God brings us back to true comfort. Which is fellowship with God. And this was Paul's aim. And so, again in verse 1, I determined for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow again. And so right away, we, know, we remember the conflict. We remember that the false teachers were saying, oh, Paul, he, doesn't, he didn't come because he doesn't love you. And we were starting to see again him starting to give reasons for why he didn't come. He didn't come to visit them as he said he would. He changed his plans. And he's telling them why he didn't come. Because it, and he says, notice it says again, that I wouldn't come to you in sorrow again. We get this idea or the indication that Paul had made this kind of one-off visit, and it was, a, it was a painful visit. It was a sorrowful or painful visit. And we don't know exactly what happened, but we can kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together, right? We can see that Paul had experienced some division, some conflict between him and this body that he loved, and this caused him and them great sorrow, Paul felt sorrow from the rejection of him, his apostleship, and the gospel. He felt sorrow over the division in their body, and they felt sorrow because he came with some rebuke. We see in verse 23, just above in, uh, in chapter 1, Paul says that to spare you, to spare you, I did not come again. And so we know that Paul at some point had come to the church, it did not go well, and Paul did not want either of them to experience this kind of sorrow again. Now, what was, what was the sorrow that he was looking to avoid? 
on this next visit? What was this sorrow of his that he was looking to avoid in this next visit? It was their sorrow. It was their pain, their sadness caused by Paul. Number two, verse 2, he says, For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? So now we see the reason for the sorrow. It has come, from, it has come to them from Paul through rebuke. Again, we see Paul's heart for them. We see that he was hurt by their rejection. Yes, of course, he was hurt, but his focus is not on himself. His focus is on them. He doesn't want to hurt them again. He doesn't want to see them in sorrow again. He doesn't want to bring any more harsh rebuke to them again. He told them that to spare them. To spare them, he didn't come again because he knew that if he came again without their repentance, without that fellowship renewed, that it would be even more painful and more sorrowful than the last time. And so instead of coming to them again, he decides to, he says in verse 3, that he decided to write them a letter. As we've mentioned before in previous messages, this is where we get the reference to the sorrowful letter. It's referenced again later in chapter 7. This is a sorrowful letter. Verse 3 says, This is the very thing I wrote you. So that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote you with many tears. Not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. And so Paul may not have visited them, but he never stops pursuing them. He doesn't just leave it alone. He continues to pursue them with a visit and a, now, now a sorrowful letter. And so our first sub-point is this. Fighting like family, fighting like family is fighting for one another's joy. Fighting like family is fighting for one another's joy. Paul is continuously pursuing them. Relentlessly pursuing this body. He's not satisfied to just leave it alone. Can you see that? He's not satisfied with letting the sin remain in the body. He's not satisfied with division. He therefore is willing to say like hard things. He's willing to say hard things to them. He's willing to say things that will hurt them. He's willing to fight for what God has prayed for. Unity, oneness in the body. Out of love for these people and a passion for God's glory and a desire for, their, for God's holiness to be displayed through this church, Paul sends them a letter. He continues to just come after them. Even if he knows it's going to bring them sorrow. Proverbs 27 verses 5 and 6 says, Better, better is open rebuke than love concealed. Better is open rebuke than love concealed. 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. This is the heart of Paul. To love, to love in this way. Paul was convicted to not conceal love. He couldn't keep the love to himself. He had to say something. He wanted to open, he wanted to give them an open rebuke, but to do it lovingly. He wanted to lovingly call sin, sin. He wanted to lovingly call out what was clearly sin and what was clearly dividing the body. And he knew it would bring sorrow, but his end game was joy, not sorrow. His end game with every rebuke is always their joy. He's fighting not to make them sad, but to make them joyful in Christ. That's his goal. Verse 3 says so. It says, so that, the so that of verse 3 says, I wrote what I wrote so that when I came, we wouldn't have sorrow. I would not have, I would not have to bring another painful word. But I wrote, I wrote it so that when I came to see you again in person, it would be in joy and fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. So how does a painful word result in joy? You might ask. For, he says, for I'm confident in your profession of faith. I'm confident. I'm confident that the Spirit would work out repentance in you. That's where the joy is found. He's pursuing their repentance and renewed fellowship. He doesn't do it with pride. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says that Paul wrote a sorrowful letter. Again, not so that they would be sorrowful, but that they would know his love for them. Listen, Paul is saying, I love you. I love you so much, I'm willing to say hard things that you need to hear in order that you might have joy. Sorrow was not the goal. Sorrow was not the goal, but rather it was repentance. A change in mind and a change in heart that results in a change of direction, away from sin and towards God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he mentions this sorrowful letter again, and we get a little more insight here. It says in verse 8 of chapter 7, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I, don't, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. See the conflict in his heart? I see, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow. He doesn't like causing sorrow, but he's willing to do it. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. He knows true loss would be broken fellowship. True gain would be renewed fellowship through repentance. And in this, we have a huge lesson. As a body, Paul's aim should be our aim here in our body, meaning that we are, be, we are to be committed to one another's joy, to one another's true comfort. 
committed to one another to point one another to Christ, willing to fight for one another's faith. Right? This means we need to be pursuing to know one another. Can't do this if we don't know each other. We must pursue to know one another, love one another, and if necessary, rebuke sin in one another in order to increase fellowship, not break it. Key distinction. Wrongful rebuke will break fellowship. God-honoring, loving, fellowship in mind, restoration in mind, forgiveness in mind rebuke will renew fellowship. It's a very big difference. Motive makes all the difference. It is the key distinction between pharisaical fake piety and loving discipline. Paul models here the difference. Love says sin is sin. Sin is sin. Sin separates, but I'm with you in it. I'm with you in it. Let's fight it. Let's kill it. I love you too much to let sin separate. Law, law says sin is sin. I want nothing to do with you. Sin is sin. I want nothing to do with you. Love concealed says, sin is sin, but you do you. You do you, I'll do me. We'll just kind of, I'm not going to judge you, you don't judge me, call it sin, but not going to talk about it. That is love concealed. One has the other in mind has the body in mind, has the holiness of God in mind, has the glory of God in mind, and the other two are conditional, worldly love. It's not love at all. On the other hand, Paul does not give license to just willy-nilly start nitpicking one another's sin either. It takes no love at all to just rebuke someone. We do that all the time. That's easy. It's not hard to look at someone else and see their sin and talk about it. That's the easy part. But it takes the love of God. It takes a real understanding of the grace of God in your life. It takes a real understanding of how God has so loved you and pursued you. It takes the Spirit of God to so desire fellowship with someone that you are willing to say something hard. Say something they need to hear with a motive to bring them into fellowship and to pursue them and help them pursue holiness together. That takes the heart of God. It doesn't take the heart of God at all to call out sin. We do that all the time. It takes the heart of God to desire love and fellowship and to desire the holiness of God above all things in the rebuke. It takes the spirit of God and love of God to say, hey, we are in this together. We're going to fight this together. And I know one day soon, I'm going to need you to do this for me. We need each other for this. Like Paul said, we don't lord anything over anyone. We don't lord anything over anyone's faith, but rather we are co-workers with one another for what? For your joy. We are co-workers with one another for your joy. And Paul, he wrote with tears. Not with anger, not with frustration, 
You kind of picture him just uh, writing hard. He wasn't angry. He was writing with tears, anguish, not in pride or self-righteousness, but with love for them and with a heart for the unity of the body and the glory of God, he called out their sin. That was his motive. He wrote them, and then he waited. He wrote and he waited to come to them. He didn't come because he wanted to wait for their repentance, which showed great wisdom and patience. Which is another lesson that just because you rebuke or you call out sin, even with the right heart and the right way, with the right tone and the right motives, doesn't mean that it will be received well. Sometimes you just got to let it simmer a little bit. Sometimes you got to just be patient and wait for the Spirit of God to do the work through that word. And that takes patience. But Paul wanted this church to understand his heart. Right? He wanted them to understand why he wrote the way he wrote and why he didn't come. But I, I also think he wanted to help the church understand the purpose of church discipline and rebuke in the household of God. He wanted to help them understand his rebuke and discipline and how they, therefore, should discipline one another. Namely, namely with a desire to protect the body and with a heart of forgiveness. And so our sub-point two today is this, is that fighting like family means fighting to protect the family. Fighting like family means fighting to protect the family. Verse 5 says this, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. And so Paul seems to make a really a kind of a sudden shift in conversation here. Like, who's this guy he's talking about? Just suddenly brings up this guy. He begins to talk, this about, talk about this man in the body that has caused sorrow, but kind of a, really is a different kind of sorrow because this is sorrow caused by sin. But who is this guy? Who is this guy in 2 Corinthians 2 that we're talking about? Now, depending on what commentary you read or, what, uh, or where you go to research this, some will say that he's re- referencing the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who had a, a wrongful relationship with his dad's wife. But I believe the context here would indicate that it's actually someone who brought Paul shame personally, face-to-face, when Paul had the sorrowful visit. Because Paul references his own personal pain. He references his own personal pain. And so the indication here is that on Paul's sorrowful visit, the false teachers were infiltrating the body. They had influenced many of the people there. And this guy stood up and said something. He outed Paul, and so, so to speak. He called him whatever we think we, the false teachers were saying. You're a liar. You're a false teacher. You're a false prophet. Uh, you're peddling the word of God. Whatever he said, it hurt Paul, and the whole congregation remained silent. So Paul left. So part of the reason why Paul even wrote was because of this incident. The sorrowful letter is surrounded around this incident of this man committing this heinous really act in the body, this divisive act. 
But what we should see is that Paul is the man nameless. Because who the man, in is, man is is really not the point. The point is, is how will the body deal with his sin? That's the point. He says, this guy who caused sorrow or pain to me was not really to me, but really it was to all of you. Yeah, his sin hurt me, but the more significant effect of his sin is the division it's creating in this body. His sin hurt me, but it really hurts the body. This again is Paul's main concern. His main concern is the body. It's protecting the body. This is why he says it was sufficient. It was good. It was right for such a one to be punished the way he was, meaning to be kicked out. Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sin left undealt with spreads throughout the body. An unbiblical worldview I left undealt with spreads through the whole body. Whether this man's sin was immorality or whether it was shaming Paul in the congregation and working against Paul, either way, either way, it's, kind of, it's really irrelevant. It, but what the main point is this, that it's the job of the body of Christ to call out sin and then and yet protect the body from such sinning. Is to protect the body, protect the family, protect and preserve the holiness displayed to the world because the sin will spread. It will infect. It will cause division. It will leaven the whole lump. And notice it says here that the punishment was inflicted by the majority. That was interesting. Meaning, not the leaders punishment was not inflicted by the leaders of the church. It was not, it was not uh, done by the elders of the church, but rather by the whole body. It was the church. It was the church that exercised church discipline. And we can assume that they went through the proper process of Matthew 18. And we can assume that because Paul affirms that what they did was right. Meaning we can assume that they did not move straight to excommunication. That is the last step of discipline. It's the very last step. Church discipline starts with, as we've talked about before, as we've been talking about, it starts with loving rebuke. Church discipline, it starts one-on-one -on -one in discipleship. Discipline, discipleship, they're rooted in the same idea. It starts one-on-one, -on -one, and then a group of two or three witnesses, and then the whole church. But it is the body that does the work of discipline. It is the body of Christ that is doing the work of discipleship. Or it is the body of Christ that is to be working with one another for our joy. It's the work of the body, because again, it's the heart of the body to love one another and protect the body from unrepentant sin. To protect the bride. Because we love the bride. Because we love the one who died for the bride. And so we fight like family to protect the family. But not without a heart ready to forgive. 
Discipleship is rooted in love and forgiveness. Discipline is rooted in love and forgiveness. Again, just as Paul's visit and Paul's letter to this body were not meant for sorrow, but rather for repentance, so is church discipline never about the punishment. It's never about the sorrow, but it's always, always, always about forgiveness. That's the whole point. And so our third point this morning is that fighting like family means forgiving like Jesus. Fighting like family means forgiving like Jesus. Verse 7 says, So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. There's that word comfort again. Bring him back into fellowship. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. This guy did something horrendous, and yet Paul displays such great forgiveness. So yes, he says, yes, you did well to call him out. Well done. You did well to send him out. You responded to my letter well. But it appears he has repented. So what do we do with a repentant person? We rejoice. We rejoice. Luke 15, if you remember, Jesus was talking about the one sinner that repents brings more joy in heaven than the 99 that never repent. We're to be like Christ. When we see somebody, no matter what the sin is, come to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. God is right. I believe the gospel. I know I'm forgiven. Please forgive me. We say yes. And we rejoice. We rejoice. This is the purpose of sorrowful letters. This is the purpose of sorrowful conversations. This is the purpose of all levels of church discipline, namely repentance and forgiveness. That's the point. That's the goal. Verse 9 says, For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Meaning, I wrote you concerning his sin. I wrote you concerning your sin, of not dealing with his sin. So I wrote you to call you to be obedient. I wrote you to... to to convince you and to persuade you towards obedience, meaning to lovingly call out sin and to remove unrepentant sin, and will you be obedient to forgive the repentant sinner? All of it. Verse 10 through 11, he basically says, look, this man hurt me. But if you say he's repentant, then let's stop putting the screws to this guy and let's all just forgive him. All right, verse 10, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Don't let... Don't let his hurting of me, Paul's saying, don't let his hurting of me stop you from being obedient to forgive. What you forgive, I will forgive. We, 
Together, we will forgive him. Why? He says, for your sake. And he's just, he says, it's all about the body. It's all about this church. He says, he says, we should forgive him for your sake, not mine, for your sake, for the sake of the body, for the sake of unity in the body, for the sake of God's glory, for love of this believer. Is not forgiveness the mark of every believer? The ability to forgive. How can anyone who has received the forgiveness that we've received and know the love of God that he has poured out on us in Christ and know how undeserving we are of his forgiveness and yet he freely gives it in Christ. Say, I look at anyone in this room and say, I can't do it. How can you do that? How can we do that? Do we understand the heinousness of our sin? Do we understand just how ridiculous we are before a holy God and yet he says, forgiven in Christ. The mercy of God. Payment paid for on the cross. Forgiven. It is finished. It's done. I love you. You're mine. And you, nothing can separate me from you. That's the forgiveness of God. Jesus said, be on your guard. He's saying, be careful. Be on your guard in Luke 17. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It takes being alert of yourself and your inability to forgive as God forgives. Be on guard. If he sins, rebuke, and if he repents, forgive. Paul in numerous places said that as Jesus forgives, so you also must forgive one another. Fight for one another. Fight to recognize your forgiveness. Fight to recognize just how Ridiculous your forgiveness is. And then lavishly give that to one another. Because the desire of the enemy is to divide the body. The desire of the enemy is to divide your marriages. The desire of the enemy is to divide fellowship between those who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ. That is his desire. This is the scheme of the enemy, and we must not be ignorant to it. Paul is not worried about his pain. He's primarily, he's worried about the pain caused in the body through division, which is exactly what will happen if this man is not received. He will be a man who is showing himself to be a true believer through this repentance and therefore will be a believer left out in the cold. This is not of Christ. This is not of Christ. He leaves the 99 to get the one. And he rejoices over their repentance. And so should we. Because we share his love. We share his heart. We share his spirit. And so in this portion of the letter, he's saying, your response to my severe letter in this man was right, but only if your response to him is like mine to you, with a love, comfort, joy, repentance, and reconciliation in mind. The purpose of my rebuke to you is only love and repentance and reconciliation. So should be the only purpose of the body's rebuke to this individual. So forgive him. He's saying forgive him. Reestablish him in the body. 
see his repentance as genuine faith and reaffirm him as a believer in the household of God. Because if not, the real sorrow, the real sorrow will be the division of the body, which is exactly what the enemy wants. That will be the worst part. Listen. Listen. Love and forgiveness are unbeatable by the enemy. I don't care if we're talking about your relationship with your spouse or your child or in the confines of this body. Love and forgiveness are unbeatable by the enemy. The enemy has absolutely no power over love and forgiveness. If we are convicted to fully love one another, pursue one another, and forgive one another, there's nothing he can do. He can't divide people who are going to forgive each other. He can create conflict, but he can't. That's as far as it'll go because we're just going to forgive. The body is untouchable. The body is untouchable when love and forgiveness are at the root of the culture of our body, committed to love one another, pursue one another, disciple one another, discipline one another, and forgive one another. Untouchable. Unified, one-minded, one pursuit. God's holiness displayed. God's glory proclaimed together. Uh, just a few encouragements. A few encouragements. Number one, we need one another we need one another to call sin what it is. We need one another to call sin, sin. No one in here has beat it. Not yet. Not till we see him face to face. So we need one another to fight this fight of faith together. I need you to bring me to true comfort. Because I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to find comfort in other things. I'm prone to pursue things that are not for the kingdom. They're not for God's glory. They're not ultimately for my joy. So I need you to help me see when I'm looking for comfort in other things. And I need you to point me back to the place where I can find true joy and comfort. I need you. Person sitting next to you needs you. You need them. Number two, church discipline starts with a conversation, but not with elders. We're not tattletalers. You don't have an issue with somebody in the body and run to the elders to talk to them about it. We run to them. We don't go to other people to talk about the sin of the body. We go to the person. rebuke sin in the body. It is the body's job and work and privilege to love one another in this way. It is the work of the body. We do not run to anyone but the person. Number three. Number three. If you can't forgive someone who has hurt you, then you cannot rebuke them. 
If you still have frustration towards that person and anger in your heart towards that person, you may not rebuke that person. It's not right. You must first remove the log out of your own eye and the anger out of your own heart and have a heart ready to forgive them, peaceful in your heart towards that person before you can ever lovingly approach them and pursue forgiveness and reconciliation with them. Otherwise, it will be about you and not about them. So before you say anything to anyone, whether, again, it's your spouse, child, or a fellow member here at Community Bible Church, you must first deal with your own sin of anger. Deal with your own sin, frustration, judgment. Take the log out of your own eye and with a heart to forgive, even right away, we must not rebuke in anger. Number four, in the form of a question. Is there any sin for which a genuine believer can't repent of and be accepted into this family? Bit of a heart check for you right now. Is there any sin for which a genuine believer cannot repent of and therefore be accepted, loved, affirmed, pursued, as Christ loves them in this family. What sin comes to mind that says, I can forgive and accept most people, but not that person? No way. If a murderer was truly repentant, like Paul, would we accept them here in our family? If a sex offender was truly repentant, would you receive that person in grace? Would you keep them at arm's length? What is your unforgivable sin? Begin to ask yourself, is that like Christ? We all have them. We all have these propensities to forgive some things and not others. We all have these propensities to have these uh, desires to say, well, I could forgive that, but not that. To judge in that way, to look down on some sins as greater and not worthy of forgiveness if should that person repent, and that is not of Christ. So we do the work of prayer and ask God to remove that from our hearts. We ask God to cleanse us of self-righteousness that causes that. We ask God to give us a heart that if God says yes to someone, no matter who they are or what they've done, if God says yes to them, then what? So do we. So do we. It is a great privilege and calling to be a member of a local body. To be a congregant in the local assembly of God, to be a, a church member, however you want to call it, is a great honor, privilege, and it is, comes with tremendous responsibility. May we not take it lightly. May we not take the responsibility, every single one of you in this room who says, yes, Christ is mine, then the responsibility is yours to be the church. I don't care if you're five years old or 98 years old. Whether you feel like you're too young or too old, doesn't matter. 
The responsibility is yours to learn, to pursue, and fight for holiness together with one another. It is a great and glorious privilege, honor, and responsibility. May we not take it lightly. May we not take Christ's church lightly. May we not be lax in our efforts to demonstrate to the world that God is holy. It's a great responsibility. And again, as I said, we cannot do it in the flesh. We must do it in the spirit, and we must do it with one another. So may we strive for unity. May we strive for fellowship. May we strive for true comfort. May we pursue one another in love and forgiveness, and may we do it together for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you, Lord, that you did not look at us and say, oh, well, you do you. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ, you took on flesh. You, in the Son, God came and he, and he lived the life that we could not live in pursuit of us, in pursuit of his people, in pursuit of his sheep. And he came and he died the death we deserve. What a great exchange. What a marvelous exchange that we get your righteousness and you took on our sin and wrath us. God, continue to work in us that we may see the riches of your grace and be those who, like you, desire to be like you, are willing to lavishly pursue one another, love one another, rebuke one another, and forgive one another. In Jesus' name, amen.